Listener Production. You are listening to episode 202 of the Howie Games Part B featuring tennis star Alex Demonor. Play. So, end of 2017, you rank 208 in the world. And then you move up 2018 to number 31. So, you've gone up 177 places. So, in that time, when was the first time you stepped on or caught Alex? You're an athlete and you've got a beat who's on the other side of the net. But when's the first time you've stepped on a court and thought, holy heck, I'm playing against such and such? And who is that person? All right. So that year I started off playing in Brisbane, first tournament, and I, uh, second round match, first round match I play Stevie Johnson. Yep. Uh, on New Year's Eve I, I get a win, ecstatic. Feeling, feeling amazing. What yes. a shot, what a return, what a result. Alex Dimonor, 18 years of age, his best result of his fledgling career to date. Second round, I play Rayonich, Milos Rayonich. Oh, the big Canadian um, with the big serve. Big Canadian, basically, uh, I'm pretty sure he was the previous champ. To be honest, I just took it as... The biggest challenge. I was fired up. I was young. I was like, you know, literally, I'm I'm gonna take it to you. And I played some inspired tennis, probably one of the better matches of my life, and and ended up going on a run uh, in uh, in huh. Brisbane. Made the semifinals. Lost a tight one, which maybe could have won to play Nick in the final. Oy. That would have been. And then the following week, I made the final of my home tournament in Sydney. And I lost to someone who at the time I thought was a very bad loss, but then realized very quickly that it wasn't that bad of a loss. I lost to Danil Medvedev. Oh, well, yeah, okay. That, that, that's fair enough. Hey, on Rayanich, um, I work a lot on cricket, Alex, and, and the batters explain – the difference between facing a 130 to 140 kilometre hour bowler is significant. 140 to 145 is extreme and anything 145 plus, and if you get to 150, they say it just becomes pure reflex. Like it might sound five or six K, but it's a completely different game. Milos Raynoch, what, what, what speed is he serving at? Well, you're probably around 230s kilometres an hour. Okay. So two thirties, and like when I watch you play, I'm not sure about in that particular instance. But you see Nadal like way behind the baseline. You're you're right up on the baseline often when you're receiving. So explain to me what what it's like a, a tennis ball coming at you at 230 kilometers an hour. As a, like, what do you serve at? Yeah, I'm probably uh, probably my fastest serve is about 210, and I almost dislocated my shoulder. <laughs> So what's the difference? What's the difference when you get 220-plus servers as far as the ball and reflexes in the game? Oh, it's coming at you quick. Yeah. Like it's all about reaction and, and just guessing. I mean, I remember, again, being young and being in this kind of mood, fiery kind of, yeah. you know, I'm going to take it to you. Um First game of that match, uh, I decide to receive first, right? And I'm like, everyone's telling me, you know, 
you know, Raonic, his service, unbelievable. Like, watch out, like, whatever, give yourself some room, give yourself some time. So I decided to kind of stand on the baseline and basically stand even closer than I normally would, right? Yeah. And <laughs> I was like, yeah, let's go. I'm, I'm ready. Well, what you got? Uh First serve was uh, 237 body and almost hit me on the full. <laughs> right? So I'm like, okay, well, whatever, you know, um, I'll do it again. Next point does the same thing, right? I'm like, okay, this could be a long day, but, you know, I'm not going to shy away from this. Anyways, he holds to love, easy hold. Uh, I get on the board one all. He misses his... Uh, First serve in the second game. Yeah. Due to a little bit of scouting, I, I, I expected him to go quite big on the second serve. Uh, and, you know, I was kind of waiting for the right side. So he, he went on a pretty big second serve and I, I spanked a, a winner. And, and I just just yelled out. I started screaming my, my head off. And from <laughs> then on, I was like every point just going off, like returning, just... I saw the ball like a football that day and <laughs> and yeah, it's probably one of my best returning days ever. Oh, that's just outstanding. Well, yeah. that is impressive. The return is so we, we, I talked about from the start with you, I want to investigate really what you do. So you mentioned scouting. And again, I come from, a, at the moment, AFL and, and cricket background. I understand what they do, opposition analysis. Do you have someone as a member of your team or is there a data person within the tennis fraternity? How do you get information about round three versus X player? How does that work in your world? Well, look, to be honest, normally um, my coach... Adolfo, um, yep. he he will go through a lot of the scouting uh, when it comes to essentially people we don't know that well. But also saying that um, we do watch a lot of tennis uh, throughout the year. So a lot of the players we do hit with, we watch matches, we kind of yep. – no, quite well, right? But, so, but, but the, the information, mate, is it provided like a, as a one-page dossier or could you tell me that Djokovic serves 63% to the forehand and he's like, it, it, does it get that statistically analysed? It can do. Uh, it depends on, on the person. Uh, you know, the Tennis Australia have got some unbelievable people that literally do all the scouting, all the stats and can give you all that information if you want it. Uh, okay. Myself, I'm, I've always gone a lot more on feel on, on the match and I don't like to have too many conflicting uh, ideas or information because, say, some guys, you know, stats say he serves 80% of the time to this spot when he's break point down. And yeah. if I'm thinking of that and... Uh, the one break point I have, he serves the other way, yeah. <laughs> I'll be snapping, right? <laughs> so so basically I'd rather go on on kind of feel and, you know, coach does a, a great job of just relaying one or two key things or key tactics that, that I kind of use and, and guides me through, through a match. Okay, so that's a good explanation of scouting. While we're on this topic... Um 
yeah, I always like the cutaway to the coaching to the box, the players' box, and there's there's a lot of people in there, and especially the big guns. You know, Roger, like he'll have his racket stringer in there and his babysitter yeah. in there, and like there's the full works. Uh, what now that you're a, a top fifteen player in the world, Alex? What's your travelling party like? Who comes with you, and what are their jobs? All right, so so basically, I've got uh, Adolfo, which. Yep. Uh, will do majority of the weeks. Yep. So uh, then I've got my physio, Emilio, who will travel maybe 16 weeks of the year. So normally the slams and a couple other or of the bigger tournaments. Uh, I've got basically uh, Kath, uh, manager as well, travels, uh, you know, probably around... 10 to 15 weeks as well with me but apart from that it's it's normally quite small okay. um when i'm in australia there's a, a lot of people that come to watch which is great you know uh i've i've got Leighton uh normally in the box i've got tony roach i've got a lot of people that are, are there to kind of help me out um also i've got this year, I've got Matt Reed, who's uh, going to be doing some weeks with me as well. Yep. So, look, mostly you'll get maybe one or two people max in my box. Okay. Maybe at the slams, I've got three people, but it's never when we don't bring the whole entourage. We'll just say that. Okay, okay. And and do you spin out in Australia when you look around in your box? And Tony Roach is there when you said your dad was pulling out the VHSs and saying, right, you're going to watch this bloke and it's Tony Roach playing. Like when you look around in your box, do you have a chuckle to yourself and think, how the heck did this happen? It is pretty surreal, to be honest. And just uh, I've been fortunate enough to do Davis Cup weeks with him and he's around, right? And I get to learn from him uh, yep. constantly. I'm I'm going to practice at his house uh, on Christmas the last three or four years. It's a bit of a tradition. Like it's... It's pretty surreal to me uh, to be in this position, and and yeah, I mean, it's it's still a novelty for me. Uh, That's cool. From the first day till now, I every time I get to spend some time with him, I get to learn some more stuff, which is uh, pretty cool for someone in my position. Very cool. I uh, answer this as best you can, um, and as much as you want to. I talked about the prize money. Can you give me a? You may not know, mate. Can you give me a general number of what it costs annually to be a professional tennis player? So, uh, you know, what what are you spending to keep yourself on the court and ready to go? Like we looked at the prize money. Would you have an idea of basically what your break-even point is? You're probably looking at upwards of 200K USD a year. Okay, This is talking because ultimately you've got – Obviously, your team, right? Mm. But every flight, every a lot of the hotels, they're they're all coming out of your pocket as well. So there's a lot of expenses that kind of you know happen. But hey, it's we're fortunate enough to to also at the same time be uh, making uh, a fair amount of of yep. money. You mentioned, uh, and I, I didn't say anything at the time. You mentioned that it's become tradition that you train at Tony Roach's. Oh, that was on Christmas Day, was it? Yep. 
Right. So you you it's okay. Okay. So that, that, now we need to talk training and dedication. I I saw you interviewed uh, the other day when you won the Nuke Medal for the second time, and congratulations again, mate. I thought you spoke beautifully. So you're training on Christmas Day, and you said in that speech you had three days off from the end of season to the start of new season. Tell me about off season training, and as a you know, I think you're you're listed at 69 kilos. You talk about you're trying to add some more bulk to your game. Um, I respect a fellow skinny man. I presume you're on the pre- protein shakes and the creatine. But how, how much? What is pre-season training for you? Like how much is on the court? How much is on your phenomenal speed? And what do you do away from that on court? How much is lifting weights? Like what what is the life of Alex Demonor as a, as a training athlete to become a top player in the world? Well, first thing we've got to clear up is I was probably 69 kilos about three years ago, so I've put on okay. a couple of kgs, uh, right? What are, you, probably, what, are you, what are you pulling at? I'm probably rocking around a, a very heavy 75, 76, so you nice. know, a lot of, well a lot of muscle a lot of... has been put on. Yes. Uh, thank you very much. Uh, and a lot of hard work <laughs> for, for small, skinny, statured dudes. That's not an easy thing to do. I respect this. Yeah. Um, now, the off-season, so... Yeah, as we mentioned, we kind of finished uh, Davis Cup final on the 26th of November. Yep. And uh, for me, I started my pre-season training on the 1st um, of December. Now, from then on, basically, <laughs> each year it's different, right? Each year you've got, you look back uh, as a year as a whole and you look at the kind of things you want to work on, you want to improve, what could have been done better, all these things. Uh, so this year, again, like the previous years, we're trying to to bulk up a little bit, put a little bit of uh, more muscle and, yeah, work on a couple of things, you know, to get a little bit more strength and get a bit more speed on my serve, on my ground strokes, all these things. Now... And is that is that weight? Is that in the weight room? Is part of yeah, that component? Yeah, so it's, uh, it's all combined. I mean, uh, I don't... Um, kind of diversify my uh, training in any way. I I do everything on on every day, basically. So I, I start the day with basically these days it's been at the start of pre-season it was around two and a half, uh, three hours in the gym, then two hours on court uh, afterwards. Shit. And then essentially, depending on the day, you might double up on some sessions or not. Normally at the start of the preseason, the week one, week two, you're doing a lot more of the stuff, a lot of the uh, more training, uh, essentially getting to the point where <laughs> you don't even want to wake up in the morning because it's uh, you just don't want to deal with what's uh, what's ahead of you. But um, we do all these things because there's no time, right? You finish on the 26th of November and I play my first competitive match on the 29th of December, right? So you play the whole year, you finish then, and look, if you want to take some time off, it's completely fine. But me, myself, I like to know that I'm prepared for the new season, and I know that there's not a lot of time, so I want to make sure that I I put in the work to, to make sure I start Australia strong. So that's why all the work, that's why you put, you only really have three and a half, four if you really stretch it, 
weeks of preseason before you start. So it's, yeah, you kind of, it's a little bit of a chasing your tail type moment, but it is what it is. So that that's the physical preparation. So much of sport, I think you acknowledge these days, Al, is um, the mental preparation. Do, do you work in in a meditation space, a, a sports psychology space? Do you, and if you do work in those areas, what what's your what's your mantra you come back to putting in your mind before you're stepping out on court? Well, I've I've worked in the past with a sports psych. I've uh, put in a lot of hours in that, and to be honest, what I've I've learned a lot about myself, and ultimately, the way I see myself is a little bit of a double-edged sword. In a way, uh, I'm a perfectionist, um, and I always want more, and I'm never satisfied. But at times, that could also be my biggest downfall. I'm mm. never content with where I'm at, right? So it's uh, it's been hard to find a balance of, you know, not letting results define your life. Now, they, assume, they still do make a, a very strong part of it. Obviously, I'm going to be a lot happier if I win than, than if I lose, but I try to not let them define me as much. And... I think the biggest change in kind of the previous three years being ranked around 20, 25, and this year is that I've finally been able to kind of let go of that and truly believe in myself and show what I'm capable of. That's a great answer, mate. So we'll get to your successes and how you've got to 12. And I'm loving this conversation, by the way, you, you give a great description of, of what's involved in getting to where you are. Can you rem- remember or think back to a moment you've walked off a court and you've been devastated by a loss or a performance? And and how do you deal with those emotions when you walk up the tunnel and then we don't see you anymore? Like what happens then when you walk away and you're shattered about what's happened on court? Yeah, to be honest, uh, the kind of life we live in, the sport we play, we play 27, 28 tournaments a year, right? You lose a lot of tennis matches in a yeah, year. Yeah, you do. So you got to learn how to deal with these things. But there are some uh, matches that hurt a lot more than others. And there's kind of a couple that come to mind straight off the bat. One was... Um, was at the Australian Open this year um, against Novak, ultimately getting thrashed on Rod Laver Arena. Was uh, was a pretty tough feeling. One of the most dominant performances of Novak's career anywhere, let alone here in Melbourne. At that stage, uh, I had done kind of so well of telling myself uh, that I was good enough to be within the top guys in the world and that I truly belonged there, that I could beat anyone on any given day. And yep. then you kind of cop a beating like that. It's it's tough to look at yourself in the mirror and say, you know, you're still good enough, right? So that one was... <laughs> 
was quite hard hitting uh, at the time. So, so on that, what what is the feeling at that point? Is it like obviously being an Australian, it's like you know everywhere he's going to be on centre court. The promos seven are going to run it or nine now are going to run it in prime time. It's front page of the paper. Do you walk off unsure, embarrassed, disappointed, crestfallen? asking yourself, can I ever beat this guy? Like, what is the main emotion when you come up against arguably the best tennis player of all time, I guess, now? What helped me get over this match ultimately was the fact that I wasn't the only one he thrashed no, no. <laughs> on, the, on, on the way to, to the title, right? So I did feel a little bit better about that. But, yeah, it's anyone who walks on that court and, you know, acts like something like that doesn't take a hit to to the ego or to the confidence then they don't really care about yeah tennis itself so i did do a lot of reflecting on that and you know i was able to kind of put that behind and work on the things i needed to and kind of turn my year around which was uh something i'm very proud of so two quick questions on relation to that djokovic why has he dominated tennis for the last 10 years? When you're standing up the other end of the court, you've played Djokovic, you've played Federer, you've beaten Nadal. Um, you know, you're up against the young guns now as well. What is it about him that he's able to keep winning and winning and winning and winning? Uh, honestly, it's it's a lot to admire his tenacity and his motivation within himself to keep on winning. I mean, he... It's it's pretty astounding. Uh, not only the kind of physical shape he's in that you know he's he's telling up the years, right? But he still is moving around and looking like he's uh, uh, in his prime. And um, yeah, yeah, he he just makes it uh, life quite difficult out there because he's one of those guys that kind of wants to win every single point. And to be honest, and, and I, the, the, the mechanics of what he does, mate. Like, does he does he hit the ball hard, or does he hit it to unusual spots, or does he put spin on, or he's just mentally strong? Like, when you're actually trying to hit the balls back to him, what is it about what he's doing that generally beats most people? Look, ultimately, um, to really hurt him, you you've got to have some serious firepower, right? Because okay. he's a wall. He is as solid as they come. Obviously, moves great. Um, his defense is amazing. Now, what he's started to do uh, in recent years is play more aggressive as well. So he's found uh, a balance of adding the two together. Right now, if you don't have an unbelievable serve or uh, some sort of immense firepower to hit him off the court, then you know he's not going to give you an inch. He's not going to give you any cheap points. So meaning that you're going to have to beat him at his game basically for, in a Grand Slam, three out of five sets, which yeah. makes it so difficult uh, at this stage in time. So the crux of you as an athlete, I think, will be answered in this next question. So you get, in your terms, wiped off the court. You felt like you're a junior player. You wake up the next morning, and eventually you go on to have a fantastic season and congratulations on that world number 11 at one point world number 12 but i don't know but i can presume next day in the paper demon or doesn't have a big enough serve not big enough not strong enough he's never going to beat the likes 
of Djokovic and the top four or five, which you've proved wrong with your results this year. So when you've got back on the court at the next training session, how have you said to yourself, right, which you must have said, I'm going to move forward because you could have just slipped back and lived life as number 70 in the world and made a good living and you'd be okay. Well, one thing you got to learn from me is that mm. I've been hearing the same things uh, from day dot, right? Have you? I've, I've heard from day dot that uh, I'm not strong enough. I don't have the weapons. Uh, my serve needs some serious work on uh, all these things. I'm never going to be able to make it. I'm uh, never going to be able to win a, a big tournament, all these things. But there's nothing, and I mean nothing, that I love more than proving people wrong. And uh, I'm going to do this till basically the last day I, I, I play it hit a tennis ball um that's just the person i am and trust me i'll I'll find a way i'll find a way to prove all these people wrong because ultimately there's nothing that gets me going more than that and you can just see my progression i know my progression isn't going to be uh from one day to the other it's always going to be gradual but hey uh every single inch little percentage counts and it's making a difference. So I'm only going to keep on improving and uh, I'll have my time. I love the answer. I love the answer. It's um, We'll end up putting a promo of this out on social media and I know now that like, that will be the clip. Like that, I'm looking at MJ, he's our social producer and he's giving it like that will be the yeah. clip because that that to me in the, in the short time I've had the privilege of chatting with you, that sums up you as well as being respectful. You're not going to leave any stone unturned. Back to Alex in a moment. We have been privileged to have featured plenty of tennis stars on the podcast over the years. Sam Groff on episode 43, who's now into politics. The ever-strong, ever-strong Elena Dockage on episode 44. The star that is Pat Cash on episode 45. Boris Becker on episode 82. Still don't know how that one came about. The surprising Todd Woodbridge on episode 171. And a man with some serious stories to tell. The scud. Mark Philippoussis on episode 106. I just was in pain. I couldn't even hold up the trophy. I was doing it with my left hand. I couldn't even lift up my right. And then I had an MRI the first thing in the morning and then I found out that I had a one and a half centimetre tear in my pectoral muscle. Huh. Um, they kept on tearing during the match. Um, but that, the first one, like you mentioned, was awesome, man. But it was earlier on, it was, you know, 1999. But this one, four years later, after going through certain things that I've gone through personally with the surgeries and then being at home, you know, playing at a home in front of Melbourne, my hometown, born and raised in Melbourne, and then doing it again. Um, yeah, that was more special. That was more special. That is Mark Philippoussis on episode 106 of the show. Let's get back to Alex. So, Alex, in any athlete's journey, and I only ask you about the negative because you like to show people that it's not all positives along the way. When have you walked off the court thinking that is the best win of my career? Oh, that's a great question. Um, finally, an hour and 20 yeah. minutes in, I'll finally <laughs> no. ask you a good one, there's mate. Been a, there's been a lot of great questions, uh, Howie. Uh, <laughs> Thanks, <mate>. <laughs> look, I think uh, there's, probably, there's probably a couple for a couple different reasons. Um, I think the first one I'm going to say was uh, this year uh, being able to to beat Nadal 
And the Demon delivers for Australia. That's, that for me is like a milestone moment. Like we're talking about the people that, especially for a kid that's, yeah, I, especially for a kid that spent a lot of time living in Spain. You know, like he's the king. I've grown up watching him. I've watched all his finals yep. against Roger. I mean, it's it's pretty surreal uh, for me to. <laughs> who would have known that uh, as a, a young kid that I was ever gonna yeah. one have the chance to play against Nadal, and two actually be able to say that I beat Rafa. Now, yep. that was pretty special. Very cool. Um, and I've, I've played him a couple times, and I've, uh, yeah, I've, I've found it very tough to to play against him. So, to overcome that as well mentally, it just, uh, it was a a big kind of moment where I was like, you know, this is something you can be very proud of. Tough to play mentally. Is that because you've looked up to him and thought? you know, th- this bloke's a god and then you're up the other end of the baseline to him? Well, yeah, I've looked up to him. I've played him, what, three times. Uh, I've played him centre court of Wimbledon. I've played him <laughs> wow. Rod Labour Arena and I've played him ATP Cup where I was up a set and probably two points away from, from winning. So, look, he, it's just all of those things and everything he's done for the sport and it's not it's not too bad to be able to you know say that I uh, I finished my career with a win over over Rafa um yeah it's very, very so yeah very that's cool. that's probably one uh the other one uh I think it's got to be if we're talking about this year probably Medvedev um in Toronto I felt like that was a a very strong moment of of showing a lot of people, a lot of the haters that uh, that I'm not just a one trick pony. That I've got a lot of other things in my game that I can offer, and I put it on display. Kind of that match. Dimonor delivers the biggest victory of his career, the biggest upset of the tournament this week. Often you look at athletes that are traveling the world, you look on the Instagram and there's big time athletes, there's private jets, um, there's amazing houses and there's normally a good car collection. Now, I I looked on your Instagram this morning and I'm thinking, I don't think he's a Ferrari guy, but he's living in Monaco. Maybe he's gone for your cheapest range Lamborghini or maybe a Porsche. And and then I've seen the car pop up on your Instagram page and immediately thought, I reckon I'd like this bloke. Tell tell the people what type of vehicle you had there on your Instagram page. It made me laugh. It made me laugh, Alex. Oh, it's, it's not just a vehicle. That's my baby. You know, just, <laughs> just before Sorry. we get into it, um, <laughs> you know, it turned... Yeah. 50 years old uh, just 10 days ago, so it had a very big birthday. <laughs> but what we're talking about here is a 1973 Mini, mm, basically baby. a Mr. Bean Mini. Right, <laughs> and why? Where, where did you buy it? Why? Describe this car and your obvious affection for it. Well, this was my, my first car I bought, and um, I mean, I, I love classic cars what can I say I just I love the mini I thought it was the coolest funnest thing ever I I love the simplicity of it and 
you know, that's my daily driver these days in Spain. Uh, I kid you not, I've got a collection of classic cars and, um, yeah, I don't have a new car. It's all my, actually my newest car is the, is the Bini. Well, like we have a lot of motoring enthusiasts listen to this show. We've had all, we've had a V eight champions, or we've had uh, Formula One drivers on this show. We've had IndyCar car drivers. We've had motorcyclists. And if I don't ask you this question, I'm going to get a lot of messages, uh, including from our great mate Greg Rust, who does a fantastic uh, motoring podcast called Rusty's Garage. You, you better give me the lineup. So you have got the mini. What else is in the garage? So I've got a '67 Mustang fastback. Oh, what color? Red. Oh, well done. Iconic well red. Done. Nice. And I've got an AC Cobra replica. Oh, uh, wow. So a nice little convertible there for the nice sunny days in, in Spain. I like that you're understated, but the enjoying the fruits of your success. Fantastic. You mentioned Agus, uh, you mentioned Nadal and looking up to him and certain things. Oh, it's, um, you obviously got a great connection and you're an athlete with um, wheat bix So that, like that's, that's, that's like, like, I think, do you look at that and think, wow, I can't believe, because you will have seen ads growing up. Like, you know, it was Tim Carr, the wheat bix kid. And we've at least Perry's been on this show. I spend time with Marnus at the cricket. Now you're a, a wheat bix athlete. So like kids are thinking, oh, you know, how many wheat bix does Alex have? Like that's iconic advertising in this part of the world. Oh, it's it's insane. I mean, it is. It really is, Alex. Like it's yeah. It, yeah I it's cool. I honestly can't believe it. It's it's one of those things that again, as a kid, you're like, you know, uh, you're having wheat bix in the morning, and you never think that at one stage you're gonna have your unbelievable face on <laughs> on the wheat bix. So uh, what did you think when you first saw the box? Like, box. did you see the box in Australia or did they send it to you? Or like, what did you think when you see your own noggin on the wheat bix box? I saw it. I, I was actually, I asked them if they could, you know, if they really needed to post such a close-up of my face, they could have put me on the background <laughs> or something like that. They, not, a, not too many people need to see my face every morning. I mean, mornings are tough as they are. You know, yet alone have to see this face every morning. Jeez. I, I feel bad for a lot of Aussies. <laughs> so how many do you have? That's the obvious question here. Like, uh, Brett Lee was a big Wheat Bix man too, um, and then it goes back in the day to the, to the iron uh, men and women, like how many wheat picks are you hitting? Yeah, well, it's obviously changed uh, over the years as I've grown and I've trained a little bit more. It's gotten uh, a little bit <laughs> higher the amount, but I'm probably uh, around four. Four is my uh, my solid number. If I'm hungry, I'll go five. But See, that's, yeah, milk and honey. It's, that, that's good numbers. That's why you've gone from your 69 yeah, to your exactly, 74 a on the way season. to becoming an 80 kilo protein bulking beast. Mate, um, I've only got a couple more questions for you. What is the next stage for your tennis development? You're talking about the training. You've now started to consistently beat top 10 players. In your mind, the next iteration of Alex Demonor, I'm sitting here speaking to you in three years' time, and I said, you've had this success, touch wood. How have you achieved it in your mind? What have you planned out with your teammate? Look, I think it's uh, exactly what we're working on. Ultimately, uh, we're getting to a stage where all of the top guys, they are hitting the ball at an incredible speed, yep. right? Um, 
they're getting free points from uh, a lot of different places. And for me, what I've got to do uh, in kind of myself is just uh, match that uh, to the point where I've got to increase my my speed on my ground strokes. I've got to increase my, my speed on my serve accuracy and I've got to play some more aggressive tennis because ultimately – you know, that's the style of tennis that's going to get me the wins against the best players in the world, right? Um, there's no no time in this world right now to, to be patient and uh, be defensive. Ultimately, if you want something, you're going to have to take it and that's, uh, that's the plan. Mate, I love it. We always finish this podcast the same way, Alex. We are privileged to have a lot of kids listen to this show, often on the way to training at various sporting things, but whether they want to be tennis players or footballers or rugby league players or scientists or guitarists, what advice would you give those youngsters from your experiences that have managed not only to achieve you a tremendous level of success, but given your answers a tremendous level of respect for those around you, what advice would you give to the young people? Well, first and foremost, I would say that the most important Thing in your life and your number one priority should be to be happy in what you're doing. That's your number one priority. And now what I've learned and what has helped me stay in the headspace that I am is that I want to make sure that by the time I'm done uh, with tennis or whatever sport it may be, that I know that I've left no stone left unturned that I've given the absolute max that I was able to give and that I'll be able to sit on my couch, on my sofa and know that I gave it my best shot and I'll be content. Alex, it's a wonderful answer. It's been a privilege to chat with you. We haven't met in person. Um, It's been an outstanding explanation of what is required to be at the top level. Um, the full Howie game, we do have quite an entourage at the Howie games. We've got MJ, we've got Das, we've got Tommy. So we're happy to squeeze into your box at the Australian Open. Hey, we're happy to come and stay at the place in, in. in Monaco. But we, we have, mate, we is don't it, invite is the it, boys. Is it Monaco or is it, is it AO? you gotta, you got to decide. We'll start with the Australian okay. Open. We'll start with the Australian Open. And if we don't get too rowdy, we might get an invite <laughs> to Monaco. But in all seriousness, mate, congratulations, not only your success, but um, oh, I've got a 14-year-old and a, a son that turned 12 today, um, and I say this truly, if – if they grow up to have the level of care, understanding and respect that you have for your family and those around you, I couldn't be more proud as a father. And that's the biggest compliment I can give you. So thanks for coming on the show, mate. Hope we get to meet you in person and may your hard work continue to pay off. Well, thank you very much. Uh, It was an absolute pleasure being on here and thank you very much. Go well, mate. Travel safely. Impressive. Impressive young man, isn't he, that one? I am now cheering for Alex Demonor whenever and wherever he takes to the court. Thanks to Alex for his generosity with his time. What a great bloke to represent Australia he is. Until next time, (laughs) with Rhea Ripley, peace and love. And we can do it if we try, try, try. If we try, try, try. If we try, try, try